the temple from afar, you hear a commotion behind you and you turn to see Jesus riding on a colt towards you. And you hear the crowds yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And you start to wonder to yourself, could this really be David's long-expected son born to set his people free? And during Passover week, you hear Jesus teaching in the temple, arguing with the Jewish leaders, and you start to think it's really happening. This is David's son, the Messiah at last. But then you awake Friday morning, you hear a commotion in the city. Again, the city is stirred up. Again, you follow the crowds and hear them shouting. But this time, they shout not Hosanna, but crucify him. And as you squeeze through the crowds, you finally see this bloody pulp of a man struggling to carry his cross out of the city. And as he dies on that cross, like so many others, you're asking, why did Jesus die? Wasn't this great David's greater son? Wasn't he the one who had finally set us free from the slavery that the Romans have us in? So this is a question people have been asking literally since the moment Jesus died. Why did this happen? Why did Jesus die? And we can ask, answer this question at several levels. At a historical level, we might say, well, Jesus died because of the jealousy of Jewish leaders or because of Pilate's cowardice or because of the people's, the crowd's thirst for blood. And of course, that's all true. But this can't be the whole answer because Jesus himself understood his death as accomplishing something. On the way up to Jerusalem, as Jesus traveled with his disciples, he asked them at what point, who do you think that I am? This is our question from last week. Who is Jesus? And Peter answers, you are Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're right, I am the Messiah, but I'm not the kind of Messiah you think I am. And he says, the Messiah must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And then, of course, in the city, when Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples at what we call the Last Supper or the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus breaks the bread. He passes the cup of wine, and he says, this is my body. This is my blood poured out for many. I'm not just going to die, but I'm dying for you. And Jesus tells his disciples, eat this meal not to remember my teaching, not because this was my favorite dinner and do it to remember me, but specifically to remember my death. He's saying all that I've done up till now is only prologue in a sense to the final work that I do. And so on the cross, Jesus' very last words that we'll reflect on on Friday night, it is finished. On the cross, in his dying breath, he does something. So Jesus himself thought and taught that his death was not simply an absurd tragedy a strange twist of history, but that his death was for a reason, that his death was for others. And every New Testament author, Paul included, shares Jesus' understanding that this death was for a reason. So let's look at Romans 3, 21 through 26, to try and understand what is the reason for Jesus' death. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood 
to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's word. And in this word, there's three basic truths that we need to see in this passage. First, that in grace, God planned our justification. Second, that on the cross, Jesus secured our justification. And third, by faith, we receive our justification. And yet we already need to pause because each of these main points and our passage as a whole uses this big term, justification. And so we need to ask, what does this mean? Especially for the kids taking notes. What does this big word mean that we're putting in our notes? Justification is a legal term. It's borrowed from the courtroom setting. Justification means that when believing sinners are tried in God's courtroom, when God stands as a judge over them, he will declare them not guilty because of Christ's saving work, which they claim on their behalf. Now think for a moment. When someone's pardoned, it means they're guilty, but they're pardoned from having to suffer the punishment for that. Justification isn't simply a pardon. It's more than that. We don't have to suffer the consequences, but we're actually declared righteous. We're declared right with God. Marcus Lone, the former Archbishop of Sydney, put it this way. Pardon says you're free to go. Justification says you may come. You are welcome to all my love and presence. In short, justification means this, being made right with God. And kids, you know this. You have a fight at school with your friend, and what do you say? You say, are we good? They say, yeah, we're good. The relationship's been restored, right? It's more than just not fighting anymore. It's saying, are we good? It's making sure the relationship's good. And that's what God does with us. He makes our relationship good again. Uh, The other thing you need to realize or remember is that even in English, righteous and just are synonyms. So justification and righteousness have to do with each other. In Greek, actually, they come from the same root. So we could say Paul in this passage is writing about the just justification of the unjust or God's righteous way of righteousing the unrighteous. Of course, righteousing isn't a verb, but if, if it were, that it's something along those lines. It's the same idea throughout this whole passage. Well, this is a long introduction, but as you know, well begun is half done. With this groundwork laid, we can see there's three truths at least in this passage. It's a dense passage and there's a lot going on, but there's at least three things we need to, we need to grapple with this morning. And the first truth that this passage teaches us is in grace, God planned our justification. In grace, God planned our justification. We don't take the initiative in being made right with God. After all, how could we? We have nothing to offer in our defense. We are, in fact, sinners, and we have nothing to give God to make recompense for that sin. Even using the language of justification means we need to be made right with God. It means we're currently not right with God, or apart from Christ, we are not right with God. We are in the wrong. And if we read through Romans up to this point, we would see that Paul spends the better part of three chapters bringing charges against the entire human race, Jew and Gentile alike. And in this audacious charge against the human race, Paul concludes that all, this is Romans 3, 9, all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Imagine the audacity of Paul to bring up 
charges, a court case against the entire human race and to find the entire human race guilty before God. We are all guilty before God, says Paul. And Paul says the same thing right here in our passage. In verse uh, uh, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All of us have broken God's law and have rebelled against him. All fall short of the glory of God. We were made in God's image, but we don't act like it. Instead of caring for those who bear God's image, we abuse them, we ignore them, we disdain them. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and so we have nothing to offer to God in our defense. We have no way to make satisfaction for our sin or to undo our past actions. And so, in grace, our justification begins with God, who in grace planned our justification. This first move in making us right with God is not made by ourselves. How could it be? But neither was it made by Jesus, somehow as a plan to convince the Father to accept us. No, Paul tells us the first move in justification was God the Father's. God himself planned our justification, planned to make us right with him. This plan is from his grace. Paul says his free, unmerited favor. It's like a gift. It's not earned. Rather, we receive our justification as we might receive a gift. Now, we need to pause for a moment to think about a common misunderstanding about the Bible. It's commonly thought or asked, is God in the Old Testament simply a judging and angry God that's thankfully left behind by the loving God of the New Testament? Obviously, this is a big question and takes a lot to wrestle with, right? Uh, So for this morning, I just want to point out that in this passage, Paul paradoxically says, in fact, if anything, the exact opposite is the case. Paul says, up until now, God in his forbearance, in his gentleness and mercy, has passed over sins. Sin, our rebellion against God and his law, our disobedience to his commands, deserves to be punished. But God is merciful, and after the flood in the time of Noah, God swears by himself that he will not destroy humanity. Throughout the Old Testament, in fact, what we see is God being patient with humanity. Humans doing truly rotten things that deserves punishment, and yet God patiently, gently bearing with them. He does judge people from time to time, but there's nothing like the final reckoning, a total and complete application of justice. In a sense, then, we could say justification is God's answer to his own problem. The problem, if we can put it this way, is that God must satisfy himself. God is totally, totally holy and just. His anger at sin is not capricious or arbitrary. It's the right reaction of moral perfection to the moral perversity of the world. We get a hint of this when we read news stories about children being abused and anger rises up within us. And yet this is only a hint. We ourselves are sinners. And yet God, who is totally just, looks on the world in its brokenness and sin, and he reacts in anger. And yet he is also a God of steadfast love and mercy. And so how can God both be just and the justifier? Is the God of the Old Testament then an angry God of judgment? 
Paul, for one, says, no, up to now, God has patiently passed over our sins, not judging them as they deserved. And what's more, in grace, God planned our justification. He planned a way that we could be made right with him, that we could have fellowship with him, even though we are sinners and he is totally holy and righteous. And what is this way that God can be both just and the justifier, that he can be both totally just and righteous and yet merciful and loving? Well, this brings us to the second truth we need to see in our passage, that on the cross, Jesus secures our justification. On the cross, Jesus secures our justification. In our text, Paul spells out for us what this means using three images. On the cross, he says Christ is offered as a redemption, as a propitiation, and as a demonstration. The first image for Christ's work on the cross is found in verse 23. God justifies us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This image of redemption and the language of redemption is a commercial term borrowed from the market. So in the Greek and Roman world, after a battle, the winning army would round up all the losers and take them home as slaves. Sometimes they'd get back and they'd discover one of these guys they rounded up is actually a nobleman. And of course, nobles are no good for manual labor, no good as a slave, but they think, aha, I can sell this fellow back to his home country and make some money out of it. And so they, uh, they, they send the message back and the home folk pass around the helmet or whatever they did to raise funds. And when they had raised the required amount, uh, they'd send it over to the land of the victors and they could buy back their, their brothers. And in Greek, this process is called redemption. Likewise, in the Jewish world, redemption was a similar commercial transaction, although a bit different. To redeem in the Hebrew Bible is really more or less to act as a good kinsman, as a good relative. So recall Boaz in the book of Ruth is a kinsman redeemer. When a family got into debt and had to sell their property or had to enter into indentured servitude, a kinsman redeemer could redeem their land. They could buy it back. Or they could even redeem their relatives who were servants by uh, buying out their contract. Metaphorically, then, Israel was redeemed from bondage and slavery in Egypt. They were redeemed from Babylon. In modern terms, the best example I can think of is that when someone has credit card debt or school loans, we say they don't have any financial freedom. They don't have the flexibility to do what they want to. And yet, if someone were to pay off those debts, we would say they are now free. In a sense, we'd say they've been redeemed from their debt. Paul's use of this image for Christ's work on the cross then is clear. It tells us first that a great price was paid to purchase sinners out of their slavery to sin. In Romans 7:14, Paul says, I was sold under, under sin before Christ bought me free. Second, this great price was paid. I put too many P's in a row here. It's <laughs> trick tricking up my tongue. The great price was paid to purchase sinners from slavery, so that now they can be set free to serve God. In Romans 6, uh, 22, Paul says, you were slaves to sin, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. On the cross, then, Christ secures our justification by offering himself as the redemption price for our freedom. The second image 
that uh, Paul uses in this passage to describe Christ's work is that of propitiation. Verse 25, God presented Jesus as a propitiation, or maybe your translation says a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Now, propitiation is an English word, but a very obscure one that we don't use very often. But I don't apologize for using it because it's in our Bibles. In the King James Version, it's used three times, here in Romans, and then in 1 John twice. In in chapter 2, John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. And again, in chapter 4, John says, herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Other translations like sacrifice for atonement are plainer and more understandable English, but don't get the full sense of propitiation. And so what we really need is one of you who has poetic abilities to coin a new English term that's more elegant than propitiation but captures the full sense. Simply put, propitiation means not simply that our sins are removed, but that God's wrath is turned away. A simple illustration I hope will help. When your mom says, don't eat chips in the back of the van or you'll make a mess and you disobey and make a big mess out of the chips, you have two problems. One problem is the chips on the floor. The other problem is that now you have disobeyed mom and she is angry with you, rightly so. You can vacuum up the chip mess when you get home, but your mom will still be angry that you've disobeyed, right? Cleaning up the mess alone doesn't deal with the interpersonal problem that disobedience brings. There's a problem in the relationship that has to be reckoned with. Paul's argument up to this point in Romans is not just that we have all sinned, but, as he says in 118, that the wrath of God, his righteous anger, is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In 2.5, he says, we store up for ourselves wrath for when God's righteous judgment is revealed. And in 3.5-6, he says, he asks, is God unrighteous? to inflict wrath on us. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? As unpalatable as it may be to consider, our sins, my sins, your sins, our sins, are the object of God's wrath. Not only has it created a mess in the world, but it's created an interpersonal problem between us and God that has to be dealt with. Our problem's not only sin, but God's righteous wrath against our sin. Both problems need to be dealt with if we're going to be made right with God, if we're going to be justified. This, then, is what propitiation means. In verse 25, it is as if Paul says, God set Christ forward as a propitiation. That is, a way to turn away God's righteous anger and wrath against us by obliterating our sins from his sight. On the cross, then, Jesus secured our justification by dying as a propitiation, by suffering the consequences of God's holy anger, by absorbing God's wrath on the cross. On the cross, God's own great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. Or, as Calvin rather boldly puts it, in a marvelous and divine way, God loved us even when he hated us. The third image for Christ's work on the cross is found two times in this passage, in verses 25 and 26. On the cross, we are told Jesus demonstrates 
or shows God's righteousness at the present time. This demonstration explicitly shows God's holiness and justice more fully than ever before in human history. No mere temporal punishment in the Old Testament, no plague or famine or exile can possibly compare with the punishment that Christ endured on the cross. But this also means then that only at the cross do we finally and truly realize the seriousness of our sin. You may recall Christ prays the night before he's crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if there is a way, take this cup of your wrath from me, but not my will, but yours be done. There's no other way for the wrath of God to be absorbed. And yet then we see the true cost of sin that must be paid if we're going to be redeemed. We see the true anger of God at sin that must be absorbed and turned aside. So when we actually look at the cross and realize that it was my sin that held him there, we suddenly realize the weight of our sin, the seriousness of what we have done. The cross not only shows, though, God's justice and our sinfulness, but it also shows us the mercy and love of God. The cross is not some advanced mathematical equation that shows how we can reconcile justice and mercy. Rather, the cross shows us that God's holiness and love, although in some sense perhaps intention, God's holiness and love have actually been working together all along in this great plan of redemption, planned by God and secured by Christ, that in his righteousness and mercy, he brings this plan to completion and makes us right with him again. Justice, of course, is no private affair. And so on the cross, Jesus secures our justification by publicly demonstrating that God is totally just in making us right with him. God wants to make us right with him. He does make us right with him. But he doesn't give up his holiness to do so. He doesn't ignore our sins or to say, you know, it's really no big deal, guys. Let's just forget about it. He deals with it. And he deals with it publicly. Where are we at so far then? All have sinned, Paul says, and yet are made right with God freely and for nothing. How does this take place? By God's grace. In God's love for the unlovely as he planned it out. But how does this grace operate? Through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. God has bought for himself a people. And God makes these people right with himself. He restores his relationship with these people by Jesus who has propitiated, who has turned away his wrath and demonstrated his justice. Through this sin-bearing, substitutionary death of his son, God has propitiated his own wrath in such a way to redeem and justify us, and at the same time, to demonstrate his justice. We can ask then, why did Jesus die? He died to fulfill God's plan, to buy for himself a people to turn away God's wrath. So what now? What do we do with this truth that Jesus didn't die merely a senseless death, but that he saw his death coming and nevertheless endured it to accomplish something? Here we need to see the third truth of this passage that Paul stresses, by faith we receive our justification. It's throughout this passage, by faith we receive our justification. We have nothing to offer. We're enslaved to sin, and we have nothing with which to buy our freedom. But by faith, we offer Christ as our payment, as our redemption. 
We stand before God as sinners deserving his anger for the wrong we have done. But by faith, we receive justification. By faith, accepting Jesus' work on our behalf, we can be made right with God. We have nothing to offer, but by faith in Jesus, we are justified. What does this mean? What does faith mean? Is it some little work that we do, some mental state that we cook ourselves up into? No, no, no. Justification by faith is nothing more than another way of saying we are justified by Christ alone. In faith, we look away from ourselves, our own abilities and accomplishments, and we look to Christ and his work on our behalf. During the great fire of 1910 in northern Idaho, Ed Pulaski led 45 men as part of a Forest Service crew fighting this wildfire. On August 20th, the fire broke out of control, and Pulaski realized that his men had to retreat or they would all die. Led by Pulaski, the men tried to outrun the fire to get back to shelter. And as they fled the fire, with the fire on their heels, even a black bear ran alongside them trying to escape the fire. Trees exploded in flames and fell under 60-mile-an-hour winds. As they headed down the fork of the river, Pulaski realized they would not be able to reach the safety of town in time. Instead, he led his men to a shallow opening drilled by miners called an audit. Not really even a full mine shaft, but just an attempt to see if there's a vein there. He led the men in. The timbers at the entrance of the shallow mine began to smolder, and Pulaski wrapped the timbers in blankets and soaked them with water, using his hat to scoop water out of puddles on the mine floor. As the smoke entered the, the, uh, the audit, the, this little mine shaft, his men panicked and tried to flee. Uh, but big Ed Pulaski, six foot, four inches tall, stood at the entrance and at gunpoint forced his frantic men to stay in the safety of this shallow mine shaft, saving most of his crew. This is a picture of faith. The men didn't put out the fire. They didn't outrun the fire. They didn't withstand the fire. They didn't pass through it. They hid in a shallow shaft in the hillside while the fire passed by. But the men were only safe as long as they remained in this little shelter. Many other firefighters, I think 87, died in the fire of 1910. Many of these men had no trust in the shelter. They tried to run out and escape the, thinking they could outrun the fire. But Ed Pulaski had faith that they would be saved from the fire if they stayed in the shaft. And so gun drawn, he forced his panicking men to remain. Our faith is nothing but this, that we hide in Christ our shelter that we find life in him and escape the wrath of God by finding our shelter in Christ. If I could make you trust in Jesus at gunpoint, like Ed Pulaski, I might consider it. But the truth is, I can't. You have to lay hold for yourself of Christ in faith. You yourself have to take shelter in Christ. You have to look on him and his work to receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. God planned our justification and grace. Christ accomplished it on the cross, but it does no good for you unless you receive it. It's free like a gift, says Paul, but you have to receive a gift before it does any good. And so all of this that Christ has done does no good unless we find our shelter in him. And so I plead with you this morning, look to Christ who died to buy your freedom. Look to Christ who turned away God's righteous wrath. Look to him and receive him alone as your hope of salvation. And if you have received him, rest in him. Remain in him. 
Like Pulaski's men, we panic and we want to fall back on our own abilities. We try to justify ourselves before the world and even before God. We try to outrun the fire, as it were. But Paul says, no, 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 no. You can't outrun the fire. The righteousness of God is ours apart from the law, Paul says, apart from any work that you can do, anything you can accomplish. So we receive our justification by faith alone. Paul draws two brief implications from this. The first, he says, there's no distinction. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and all only have hope of being made right with God through Christ's work by faith. The harlot, the liar, the murderer fall short of God's glory, but so do you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you on the top of Mount Baker, but you are as little able to reach the stars as they are. God's holiness is so far beyond us that it doesn't matter if you're the greatest of sinners or perhaps the most holy person in this room. Your only hope is Christ and his faith in Christ. All come to Christ the same way through faith. Second, says Paul in verse 27, going a little bit beyond our passage, there can be no boasting then. No one can look down on others for their sins, their shortcomings, and their failures. We all fall short of the glory of God And we all are made righteous, made right with God through faith alone. Jonathan Edwards grasped this truth profoundly and wrote in his resolutions, I shall act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others. I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself, and provide an occasion of my confessing my own sin and misery to God. I won't mince words. Paul's implication is clear. There is no place in the church for singling out our pet peeve sins, for holding signs that say God hates this or that sort of sinner. Paul says we all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all can have right standing with God only by hiding in Christ and his work. Our big question for the morning then, why did Jesus die? Jesus died to make us right with God for our justification. In grace, God planned our justification. On the cross, Jesus secured our justification. And by faith, we receive our justification. Why did Jesus die? Jesus died because this is the creator becoming the redeemer for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Who shall bring any charges then against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us then from the love of God? I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor present things, nor things to come will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To God alone, then, be the glory for our salvation forever and ever. Let us pray. Gracious Father, as we set about this holy week, we will be reminded in many ways of the work that your son accomplished and secured on his cross some 2,000 years ago.
I ask as we are reminded, perhaps on Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday service, perhaps Easter morning, as we are reminded of this work of Christ, that through your spirit you would build up our faith, that those who have never come to terms with Christ and why he died would finally come to terms with this reality that Christ died for them to make a way for them to be right with God. For those of us who do believe, that is to say that we have faith, that we have trust in Christ's work, build up our faith. Teach us to rest in Christ's work alone. Not in anything we do or say, but in Christ's work alone. And so we ask as we meditate this week on Christ's final days, final hours, final breaths, that we would rest in this work that was accomplished once for all, in Christ's death for our justification. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who did die to secure our salvation, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, who builds up our faith. Amen.